The one thing in all the chaos of this week, and it really was one of the worst weeks for the administration. So amid all this confusion, the one thing that's clear is that everyone in that White House is not on the same page. My name is Martine Powers, and this is Can He Do That? A podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. For the past week, there's been one story consuming the attention of the White House and of people around the country. Border separations. Since April, more than 2,300 children have been detained by the U.S. government and separated from their parents after crossing the border into the U.S. These kids are held in detention centers, or as some members of the administration call them, tender age shelters. There have been photos of the inside of these facilities, children kept inside chain-link pens with space blankets and mats on the floor to sleep on. And the administration has taken a remarkable number of stances on this, asserting that this was not their policy to break up these families, then defending their policy as part of a zero-tolerance stance on immigration, and then finally just backtracking on the whole thing. On Wednesday, Trump signed an executive action to stop family separations. But it's unclear what happens to the kids who've already been removed from the care of their families. So today, we're talking to Mary Jordan, a national political correspondent with The Post and a former Mexico bureau chief, about the origins of this crisis, about Trump's executive action, and about what happens next. Border separations apparently have been going on since April. And at this point, we have more than 2,300 kids who have been separated from their parents are in detention centers of some sort. So why is this all kind of blowing up now in the past week? I think we didn't realize what was going on. You know, the numbers came out, and then most importantly, the images came out. You know, people are busy, and they hadn't really realized what was going on. This focused people They saw cages. They saw tents. They saw little kids, you know. They were teenagers, but there was also little kids who were just basically forced away from their parents. And then, of course, there was the crying audio, you know, the audio of babies crying. And, you know, it seemed un-American. The former first lady started weighing in really strongly. You know, they, they called it immoral, a shame on the country, a disgrace. I mean, this was a huge deal. And so the White House was, you know, wanted Donald Trump, wants to be hard line on the border. And he, even he, who hates to reverse course, did. Finally, on Wednesday, he said he issued an executive order and he said, OK, we're not going to separate families anymore. I think that for people who were watching the news, it seemed like every minute there was sort of a new perspective or a new attitude towards this. You know, you had Jeff Sessions who was sort of using the Bible to justify why this was the policy, but then sort of backtracked on that. And you had the director of Homeland Security saying, you know, this is not our policy, but then kind of defending the policy. And why were you hearing all of these different messages about what was actually happening? Unlike any other White House in modern times, there is no message machine. It is really seems like it's every man for her, him or herself. People go by their instincts. You know, it, the typical way it 
works is in a crisis mode, the chief of staff at the White House has an early morning meeting. There's talking points. You know, the the policy is clear. All right, this is what we're going to say. Then during the day, things come up. So there's conference calls and then there's late night gatherings. All right, that does not appear to be happening because everyone is going in their own direction. We have Melania saying, clearly trying to distance herself from the policy, saying that she had been forcefully, especially right before it was uh, rescinded, telling the president she did not want families reunited. Then we have all the cabinets seem to be having their own point. And the Homeland Security Secretary did a very tone-deaf thing. And she, in addition to going to a Mexican restaurant where she was booed, in addition to that, you know, this is a heart-wrenching emotional debate. And she just kept talking about numbers and not kind of hearing what people were really worried about. I think it's really unusual to have not everyone on the same page. This administration has very strong personalities and, you know, kind of people with their own brand. You know, the first lady, her whole initiative is I care about kids. So she cannot be identified with a policy that looks like it's pretty brutal to kids. And the same with Ivanka Trump. So noticeably, she was super quiet. She's a key advisor to the president, and she was getting pummeled saying, hey, Ivanka, you've got kids. You're advising the president. Where are you? And it was very noticeable how invisible she was until the order was reversed. And then she thanked the president for, you know, for fixing it. And then you have the president kind of going off on his own way, blaming Democrats, even though the Democrats had nothing to do with this. Again, this morning was tweeting about those Democrats who had caused this problem. Well, that's just not true. And this cabinet, you know, again, it is not a well-oiled, regimented messaging machine. It is really discordant. So why did President Trump end up backtracking and deciding to issue an an executive action on this if he was so firm on the idea that this is part of a zero-tolerance policy? I guess the short answer is that there's elections in November. And Republicans in his own party were going crazy. You know, there was just uh, the backlash was so big, bigger than he expected, bigger than Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, who had said that, you know, he was all for this. And then all of a sudden he went on Christian Broadcast Network as people were really horrified about it and then said inexplicably, actually, we didn't intend to do this. So I think the heat, it just got so hot that Trump decided to reverse course, even though he hates to do that. So what does this executive action actually do? Well, it is a little confusing. And even at the end of this week, it is unclear how those kids are going to get back with their parents. Uh, It doesn't seem like there was good record keeping. There was some communication problems on the border. I don't know if they have cell numbers. I mean, it is a continuing on-the-ground problem. But the executive order was just saying that it's not going to be a matter of policy going forward, that there'll be a forced separation. You know, if a family tries to cross the border illegally, no longer will the kids be separated from the parents. They'll be detained together. And the reason that they had been separating, they made very clear, was to deter other people from coming over. So the idea there was that in the past— If you had crossed the border illegally and you were doing that by yourself or with other adults, that you would be put in prison or put in jail because this is a misdemeanor offense. But that under Obama, under George W. Bush, and under the first 15 months of this administration, that if you had children with you, they would basically let you go 
out into the country because and, and order you back for court hearings, but they would not detain you because you had children. And now the idea is that there's not going to be an exception for parents anymore. That was sort of the, the reason why this came up. Is that correct? You know, I spent five years uh, as the Washington Post correspondent in Mexico, so I've spent a lot of time on the border. And, you know, enormous amount comes down to the individual border guard. You know, when he sees families going through, sometimes he just simply just turns them around and says, don't come in. You know, sometimes they are detained together. But what happened here was that there had been like this forceful, okay, we're tough. We're not standing for this anymore. You know, we're fed up with this. And so there was a specific effort to make a case, like to show these pictures and to say, okay, you know what? If you're going to come over here, even if you have a little kid, we're going to take that kid. We're going to put them in one detention center. And we're going to take you from another. There was even a man who died of that, you know, was so traumatized, his family said, when his kid was taken from him that he actually died in the detention center. There were all kinds of incredibly sad stories. And so going forward now, they're supposed to not do that anymore. So we'll see how it is. I mean, still, it's a 2,000-mile border, and officers are different. It's almost like when you come into Dulles Airport or any airport, LaGuardia, from abroad. You know, sometimes you get a very happy, easygoing agent, and then you get somebody who's really grumpy and in a bad mood and gives you millions of questions. So you mentioned that the record-keeping so far of the 2,300 kids who have been who have been separated from their families, it hasn't been perfect or far from perfect. What is going to happen to these children? So in the middle of the night when they separated, a let's say, a two-year-old from their parent, they didn't take great records, right? We're already seeing that they had some language problems. They didn't take the telephone number down right. If they didn't have a number, sometimes the parents were moved from one shelter to another. Sometimes they were sent back across the border. Um, and then the kids are in a different place without a phone. I mean, just the Physical uh, matching, again, with the families is just it's a logistical nightmare now going on, on the border. And also a lot of these kids are young enough, right, that they might not be able to say, you know, they just know their parents as mom and dad. They don't know their home address. They don't know a phone number for their family. Well, it's particularly hard on the younger ones, absolutely. There's a whole other issue about unaccompanied minors, but those tend to be older kids, you know, who, who were kind of went there in the frame of mind, okay, I'm doing this myself, I'm 13, I'm 15, I'm 17. They had their numbers and their, you know, knew what to do when they were in trouble. These were families that were crossing together, and sometimes the kids were very, very young. It's utter chaos, what's going on there. It's very unclear. There's enormous amount of unanswered questions. Some kids were flown to other cities because there was no capacity there. So you have young kids without parents in New York City. And people, you know, well, okay, well, was the parent returned to Honduras? You know, how are we going to find them? And then when we find them, are we going to fly them back up here to get the kid? Are we just going to put one of these kids, really young kids on planes going back? All of these things still have to be worked out. And so then how does this dovetail with action from Congress? I mean, is this going to affect the prospect of any immigration legislation or? Congress is really a mess right now. There were two bills. One was more moderate and one is more hard line. But both of them look like they're going uh, nowhere. Again, all eyes on the November election. And people don't want to be seen as, you know, 
not compassionate. They don't want to. I mean, there's this whole other very important part. Even though the president keeps talking about the money for the wall and I'm going to build the wall and give me money for the wall and I'll, you know, Congress, please act. It's tied up with this whole other thing about kids, the dreamers, you know, the young kids who came here with parents who had entered illegally. Sometimes they were months old. Sometimes they were two and they've lived their whole life here. They don't speak Spanish. Well, some hardline people say, throw them out. And there's a lot of them. And then other people say, this is ridiculous. This has to be in any package. If we're going to give you any money for the wall, you have to let the dreamers stay. And so, but right now it is stuck, 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 because the Republicans don't have the votes to pass. Well, I wonder if people who supported the idea of the border wall are also in support of this kind of hardline stance on these families coming in, or if this is where President Trump's zero-tolerance policy is going to break down, where you have people who supported the wall but are going to look at this and be like, ugh, this was maybe a step too far. Yeah, I think some hardliners are happy to see families separated because they see it as a deterrent, and others, even if they want the wall, say, you know, this is not who we are. I mean, those images were pretty unforgettably sad. You know, And so there is a point of divergence on that. But I don't think Donald Trump would have <laughs> reversed himself because, you know, he hates to do that unless he knew that this was a mistake. Do you think that an issue like this that has gotten so much attention would have an actual tangible effect on turnout in terms of getting people interested in actually participating in the midterms? There is no doubt that Democrats and other people who oppose the tough immigration stance of this administration, they are going to be using the images and those audios of the crying babies fully in their ads and in their uh, effort to retake the House and say, look, this is why. This is what happens when we have Republicans in Congress, and we need more might, and we need a different party to take control of the House. Thanks for listening to Can He Do That? from The Washington Post. Over the last several months, We've been spending a lot of time holed away working on a special miniseries about midterm elections. It's called How to Flip the House. And it's about the three times in the last 60 years that control of the House of Representatives has changed from one party to another. That's the 94, 2006, and 2010 midterm elections. And finally, we're ready to release the series. It comes out on Tuesday, June 26th, but if you listen through to the end of the credits of this episode, we're going to play for you a sneak preview of the beginning of the prologue, which is the first episode of the series. So hang on through the credits to listen to that and look for the rest of the series to drop in the Can He Do That podcast feed starting June 26th. Until then, we'd love if you could take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else that you listen. Check out previous episodes of Can He Do That at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. This episode of Can He Do That was produced by Ted Muldoon, who also wrote the theme music, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks and logo art from Loren Boglio. I'm the host, Martine Powers, filling in for Allison Michaels. Special thanks to Mary Jordan for coming on the show. And now, the beginning of the prologue of How to Flip the House, a special miniseries from the Washington Post's Can He Do That podcast.
Joining us now for some analysis of today's election, E.J. Dion of the Washington Post and the Brookings Institution. I have never been the kind of person who pays a lot of attention to midterm elections. Like, I have this vague memory from fall of 2006, sitting in the car with my dad late on a Tuesday night. We're eating frozen yogurt in the parking lot of a shopping plaza, and we hear on the radio that Republicans have just lost control of the House of Representatives to the Democrats. Are you seeing this Democratic wave that so many analysts were predicting going into this election? And I remember that my first thought was, like, who cares? Bush is still president. He's still the one with all the power, still the one making all the decisions. So there's a few more Democrats in Congress. Like, how much of a difference will that actually make? Now, it's 2018. Donald Trump is president, and it's become clear to both the voters who despise him and the ones who love him, midterms matter. Because the thing about our election system is... We don't get takebacks on who we choose as president. Build that wall. Build that wall. Build that wall! We don't get to redo election night. President-elect of the United States of America, Donald Trump. Thank you. But halfway through each presidential term, we have this one window, this one night to take action to hold a referendum on the president, to decide whether we're going to crank the emergency brake or whether we're going to put our foot on the gas pedal. These are the midterms. Will the GOP build on its majority? Or will the Democrats be able to flip the House, Senate, or both? Elections for state legislative seats, for governors, for judges, for senators, and most of all, for the House of Representatives. Democrats are bullish on their chances in 2018, thinking recent election victories signal a blue wave that could help them retake the House of Representatives in next year's midterm. Because each U.S. representative is up for re-election every two years. That makes the House incredibly susceptible to waves, to major shifts in national sentiment. And the midterms present an opportunity to completely reshape this legislative body that makes or breaks what the president can get done. They can amp up the strength of the president's agenda, or they can tear it down and force him to come up with a completely new one. They can protect the legacy of the preceding president, or they can ensure that it gets destroyed. And most of all, the House is the sole body within the government that has this one very specific power, a power given just to them in the U.S. Constitution, the ultimate check on the executive branch, the power to impeach a sitting president. So your vote in 2018 is every bit as important as your vote in 2016. Although I'm not sure I really believe that, but you know. I don't know who the hell wrote that line. I'm not sure. But it's still important, remember. So that was just the beginning of the prologue to How to Flip the House. If you want to keep listening, just look in your feed for the episodes to start dropping on June 26th. You can also check out our special page about this series that will be appearing on the 26th wapo.st slash how to flip the house. Again, that's wapo.st slash how to flip the house.